And the drums go bang and the cymbals clang and the horns they blaze away. McCarthy pops the old bassoon while the harps they play. Hassie Tassie toodles a flute and the music is something grand. A credit to old Ireland is McNamara's band. McNamara's band, folks. Don't we love it? We love the band from Ireland. McNamara's band. Those cats could play, Jack. Let me tell you. They're all about it. I first came to London, I was only sixteen. With a fiver in my pocket, my old dancing bag. I went down to the dilly to check out the scene. But I still ended up upon the old dancing bag. Those cold winter nights, they all knew it was chill. There are boys in the cafes who get you cheap pills. Didn't have the money to go and pick. There's always lots of chewing on the old track. What are they doing? The revenge of the lips. Revenge of the lips. Ghost. Let's take a look. There we go. Click. Then I was lying down in Leicester Square. Got kicked up by the coppers and kicked in the balls. Between the metal doors at Vine Street, I was beaten and mauled. And I ruined my good looks for the old main drag. So guys and gals, uh, I am now able to command the... Uh, the stream. I don't have to use my phone anymore. This is wild. I get to click on a little button and it just streams my computer camera. Amazing. Uh, it's a game changer. We've entered a new phase. We've entered the phase omega of the, uh, of the streams. So today we're going to be talking about chapters 9 and 10 uh, in Eric Foner's Reconstruction. Chapter 9, the problem of enforcement is about white resistance to Reconstruction. And uh, chapter 10 is about Reconstruction in the North and how it impacted the uh, political agenda of the Republican Party and their uh, willingness to continue supporting Reconstruction, basically. 
So after the imposition of the uh, the Southern Republican Reconstruction governments, uh, the white Democrats of the South, which was obviously the majority of all of the landowners and most of the white people outside of unionist strongholds, uh, realized that their policy of basically pretending that it wasn't happening and abstaining from elections wasn't working. Uh, like in Mississippi, they were able to prevent a constitutional, um, uh, the state constitution from being ratified by boycotting because it uh, failed to produce a necessary, uh, the necess- what was required is the necessary uh, voter turnout to, to make the vote binding, but they just changed that requirement and put it back in anyway. So uh, the Democrats in the South realized that it wasn't working. And so two strategies of how to go about dealing with the political system and with the reality of Reconstruction and black suffrage uh, in, in the South. First, you had the white line Democrats, the ones who insisted upon uh, white supremacy uh, as the cornerstone of governance and denied the uh, validity of the Reconstruction governments entirely uh, and, the, in, in, and denied the validity of black uh, suffrage entirely. Uh, but more influential and more successful were those Democrats who uh, uh, accepted as a fait accompli the reality of Reconstruction, the reality of black suffrage, uh, and, and called instead for a new departure, which said, all right, fine, there's black suffrage, we can't stop it, what can we do? Uh, and what they did was they... They joined the Republicans or they joined factions of Republican parties uh, outside the Deep South where the uh, the black vote wasn't completely dominated uh, or completely like uh, organized around the Republican Party. Uh, in states like Virginia and Tennessee, uh, the, in the 1869 and 1870, the uh, new departure Democrats allied with conservative Republicans were able to uh, win and take over. Uh, their agenda, their economic agenda, was totally hostile to freed slaves, even though they made grudging attempts to uh, reach out to black voters. Uh, but it was attractive to poor whites because it emphasized lowering taxes because one of the big consequences of Reconstruction government was a huge increase in public provision, which also led to an increase in taxation, uh, which squeezed low, uh, uh, <clears throat> small-holding farmers and poor whites harder even than it did the, uh, the, the rich whites. Um, and the other element was uh, agrarian reform. The idea being that if we cannot deny uh, black suffrage, if we cannot deny black civic equality, then we can reduce black labor power by utilizing uh, new farming technology, uh, advanced uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, advanced like irrigation and fertilizing techniques, and encouraging immigration. Uh, from either like Ireland or even China uh, to break the uh, 
the the mm, to break the black uh, laboring class's ability to negotiate the the conditions of their work. Uh, even George Fitzhugh, who I've talked about before, who was before the war an author of a number of works that controversially, even in the South, claimed that uh, wage relationships uh, within the white race were wrong, and that honestly everybody should be either a slave or a uh, owner, because a democracy was a fraud that assumed an equality that was not possible. But in the aftermath of the war, he saw the way the winds were blowing, and he became a big booster for the uh, bringing of capital to the South, all on the idea that you're going to reduce the uh, effectiveness of black labor and political organizing. Uh, there's one quote in the book about how someone says, we need to bring in the, great, the most advanced uh, farming machinery, one of the advantages of which is that it can't vote. Uh, but the thing that stymied a lot of these efforts is, as was always the case in Reconstruction, capital. Like, for example, uh, one of the big uh, agricultural modernizing projects was introducing mixed uh, planting uh, instead of having just entire regions dominated by cotton planting. And that was possible in some northern parts of the South, but in the, the Black Belt, in the Cotton Belt, uh, it would have required very expensive fertilizer, which would have required capital that during this period, the South just was not getting. Uh, and then you have the fact that the crop lien system, where everybody was uh, operating on credit, the, the planters were operating on credit from banks, the, the sharecroppers were operating on credit from the planters. Uh, it didn't, it created a path dependency where there wasn't really, no one could afford to miss a harvest. Nobody could afford to not be putting up uh, cotton, so diversifying became uh, kind of a non-starter. So places where the uh, these new departure Democrats took power in these border areas like Virginia, by the way, uh, Virginia had a, a Democratic Republican, right-wing Republican fusion government take over partially because the radical Republican uh, coalition uh, headed by the, the newspaper writer, newspaper editor uh, Honeycutt, which I talked about last time, and which actually did bring together uh, poorer whites and, and ex-slaves uh, around a really radical economic agenda uh, that and, and who passed a radical constitutional, uh, who created a, a radical constitutional convention uh, and, and, and a radical constitution. Uh, the Union general who was in command of... Uh, Virginia, James, John Schofield, refused to allow a vote on it. So uh, into that vacuum, the, uh, the redeeming new departure Democrats took power. And wherever they did, they implemented voter restrictions that were just on the right side of the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed voting, uh, regardless of, uh, rate, voting rights regardless of race. That meant um, poll taxes. Uh, and it should be noted that there's two types of poll taxes, and you see some confusion with this. Like, uh, for example, there was a bunch of, there was in the 80s, there was a huge amount of uh, protesting in England about the poll tax. And poll, in that sense, and in American history also, in some places, poll means head. 
and it is a regressive tax on individuals. Like X, if X number of people live in a county, every one of them owes X number of dollars in, 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 uh, in taxes, which of course is regressive because rich people can afford to pay it more than poor because it's fixed by just the fact that it's, it's, a, it's a fixed amount per person. Uh, but these are poll taxes that said you had to pay money to vote. Uh, it also reduced the number of polling places in, in uh, uh, black strongholds, if that sounds familiar. Uh, and gerrymandered districts away from uh, black belt counties. Once again, if any of this sounds familiar. And in addition to that, they also rescinded all of the uh, legislation that the radical regimes had done to help uh, freed, slave, uh, freed slaves and, and poor people uh, uh, prosper and, and negotiate their own terms of employment. Uh, they got rid of uh, for, foraging rights, which are very big because if you can forage, it means you don't necessarily have to take a wage or work a crop lane. Uh, and also the homestead exemption from debt repayments and the rule that uh, meant that the laborer's uh, claim to a crop superseded any uh, other debtors uh, or any other uh, lenders that the, uh, that the planter might owe. Uh, and this was all uh, in the so- Deep South where the, the, the Republican governments held power simply because of the, the still significant and unified power of the black vote uh, with a huge explosion in violence and the forming of uh, the Ku Klux Klan. This is the part of the book that, if you've read it, is the most nauseating and enraging part yet. Uh, where you see, in response to the institution of these uh, radical Republican interracial regimes, a huge explosion in political violence. Uh, massacres, lynchings, whippings, targeted assassinations of community leaders, also white Republicans as well, um, with specific uh, intent to attack people who had uh, any kind of political expression, labor labor militancy, and very importantly, uh, any pretensions to ownership of property. Uh, And... This is like the key element to the failure of Reconstruction, or one of them. Uh, and it's uh, maddening because it was not ordained and necessary. It was not like some sort of uh, uh, stimulus response that could not have been either precluded or stopped once it started. And it's important to remember that it was made up, this reaction, this the Klan uh, violence, the people who carried it out, were uh, not just poor white trash. They were a whole swath of white society in these places, and generally led by the better elements, uh, the professionals, the landowners. Uh, it was, a, in many ways, a planter reaction to the rise of, of, of black power. And... One of the most frustrating things reading it is seeing how powerless people were to stop it, even though Republican regimes were empowered in many of these states, even though, uh, you know, you had huge numbers of uh, ex-slaves living 
here now as free people, technically as equal citizens with rights, uh, there was very little response to the violence. There was very little uh, tit for tat, and there was very little defensive violence. And and this was something that in the North, a lot of people found kind of pathetic. They said, why don't you stand up for yourself? Which is ridiculous because they were in a situation where the, the uh, social milieu meant that any white violence would be ratified by local power, like the local courts, uh, local government, uh, and any violence by freedmen would be instantly cracked down upon with no, because in most of these places, there's barely any federal presence. There were uh, less than 6,000 U.S. troops in the South, I believe, by this point, uh, and scattered throughout the entire region. And so even if there had been a desire on the part of the federal government at that point to crack down, which there wasn't, uh, there would have been very diff- much difficulty in having those resources deployed. It was it was very difficult to imagine a situation where if you uh, stood up for yourself, anything would happen other than just a total uh, smackdown and destruction of your the entire area. Uh, and this violence was very, very uh, effective at undermining Reconstruction, because the people who were killed were generally people who had achieved some degree of literacy uh, and political influence and had shown themselves to be leaders and had, in many cases, leadership of a bunch of different intersecting civic organizations and political groups, which meant that you could essentially decapitate uh, ex-slave political power by killing only a few people because so many of, of uh, the ex-slaves had no education and had no uh, literacy and uh, as such had a very difficult time negotiating a lot of these, uh, these power structures. The people who could kind of made themselves targets in a way and were violently uh, repressed. And this is why you really can't think of the Civil War as ending in 1865. It's just moved to a different phase. People say, oh, Robert E. Lee was so uh, gallant and, and, and honorable because he didn't send the army off to do guerrilla fighting. Well, they didn't do it then, but they did it later. Uh, and it's important to note they were allowed to. Uh, because where state governments decided to crack down, state governments here, because as I said, the federal power to do anything was, was pretty muted. Where state governments acted, where there was a reconstruction, a radical government in place, that had any kind of legitimacy and efficacy, they were able to crack the fuck down on these guys. The two most sterling examples were Arkansas and Texas, which both saw uh, their uh, radical governors uh, creating uh, uh, interracial police and militia units at the state level that just arrested the shit out of people, just went in there and fucking and, and threw people in jail. And it led to, uh, in Texas... Uh, Governor Edmund Davis had 6,000 Klansmen arrested, uh, and it had an effect. People didn't fight. I mean, the, the violence was was so widespread because impunity was assumed. I mean, these people are fucking cowards. Uh, if they think they're going to get in trouble, they're not going to do it. And I would like – and uh, one of the most – Horrifying, and the, the single vi- most violent uh, incident of all of Reconstruction was the Colfax Massacre, which occurs at this time, in which uh, a, a struggle between local factions in uh, in Colfax, Louisiana, leads to a black militia essentially 
take, commandeering and taking control of a city town square there in, in Colfax for uh, a number of days until uh, they were just overwhelmed by a, uh, a redeemer militia that massacred over 200 of them with no repercussions. But where there was a state response, there was a reduction in violence. There was a capacity to do this, but there had to be uh, a mechanism uh, for uh, of where where the state was willing to enforce and back up black claims to rights. Uh, and the big effect of all this violence is, is that it brought a big decline in black turnout, as you can imagine, and it led to Democrats gaining. Uh, yeah, of course, Edmund Davis. Of course, Texas public school history called him a tyrant. Yeah, no, he was a pimp. Uh, he was a pimp. Sorry, Edmund Davis, pimp. Benjamin Butler, pimp. Because guys like that realize something that is lost in history and was even lost at the time to the, the, the liberal Republicans uh, in the North, which is that they wanted to see this as a political struggle. They wanted to see the, the battle over who will be in charge of these governments in the South as a political discussion. But it was not. It was for the Republicans, the, the former slaves and the scalawags and carpetbaggers who were trying to govern these, these, these states. They were operating by political rules. They were, trying to, they were trying to raise votes and they were trying to win elections. For the white power structure, it was an existential war. It was a war that had never ended. Uh, since 65. And when you have that kind of situation where one side is willing to go beyond politics and the other one is constrained by political uh, conceptions, uh, the the side that is willing to take the most extreme uh, measures will win unless the other side understands the, the, uh, the, the real terrain and acts accordingly. And there were attempts to do that, but they were half-hearted, haphazard, and not coordinated. And this is why my big dream, my big what-if, at this point, it isn't even that Lincoln lives so much as that Butler is vice president. Because if Butler is vice president and Lincoln still gets assassinated, I have a hard time imagining that we get any period of reprieve for the planter class, and certainly not the Confederate high command. I mean, this is a guy who, when he was uh, the gov- military governor of New Orleans, hanged a guy for pulling down the American flag and stepping on it. Even though everybody assumed he wouldn't hang this guy. They were like, there's no way he's going to hang a guy for taking the flag down. That's insane. He's going to, like, try him, and then he'll, the guy will give a speech, and then he'll, he'll commute the sentence. And they had, they, had a big, they had a big deal. They let the guy give a talk. He said, I'm doing it patriotically. Everyone is waiting for Butler to give him the old uh, – give him the – the Lindsey Buckingham uh, glad hand, TM Lex G. And instead, he's like, no, hang the motherfucker. So it's hard to imagine that if he gets into power with, with fucking Lincoln's blood on his hands, that, uh, that he would have been nearly as, as uh, conciliatory to these people as Andrew Johnson was. Uh, But what this really boils down to more than anything is that by this point, and this is the important thing, by this point, at this point in time, after the initial failures, after uh, the railroad lobby had essentially bought the Republican Party, there was just no commitment in the Northern Republican Party to uh, 
do anything other than let the South sort of figure its, out, figure its own shit out. There was no real commitment to the display of force, the, the transgression of norms uh, that would have been required to actually do something. But eventually they kind of had to. Uh, the Grant regime, though, was very slow in dealing with things. And this is where we got to talk about Grant a little bit. I know that I've said that Grant is underrated, uh, and he is relative to his traditional position in, in American history, and certainly compared to the Dunning School fucking propaganda horseshit. But uh, he was not the man for the job, not the man the times demanded. Uh, the very fact that he was the nominee spoke to the rise of this conservative sort of... Uh, fiscally oriented section of the Republican Party over the radical spirit that had sort of gutted out and, uh, and had essentially uh, gathered to ensure that Benjamin Wade didn't get the nomination in 1870, 1868. Uh, but he had his upsides. Uh, and one of them was that he actually did eventually uh, crack down on uh, on the Klan, but that in, that uh, the impetus for that came from Congress in the form of the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was uh, shepherded through the House by Benjamin Butler, and which led to a uh, massive number of arrests in in the areas of peak Klan violence in the Piedmont South, and uh, led to a huge reduction in violence. Mm-hmm. One thing that didn't happen under Grant was the 15th Amendment, which is uh, very interesting because one of the reasons that black suffrage was not the silver bullet that a lot of Northern Republicans assumed it would be. Like Republicans who were very uh, leery about getting into questions of redistribution and positive liberty because of their, liber- you know, their liberal ideology uh, put all of their faith in the ballot. Let black people vote and they will be integrated into the political system, and we will not need to uh, change the relationship between subjects of a government and, uh, and the government itself in terms of like, it's what, it's, what, it's, what its provisions are. Uh, and one of the things that made that impossible is that the 15th Amendment, while it bans uh, uh, discrimination on race for voting, it does not, it did not actually remove impediments to voting that existed in northern states or make voting a actual right, which it still isn't. We kind of think of voting as a right, but it's kind, it still really is more of a privilege in the constitutional sector, in the, in the constitutional sense. Uh, like equal provision of the ballot is, is considered anathema racially, but other than that, states are sort of at their discretion to figure out who is allowed to vote, which is a holdover from the old, constitu- old early constitutional era and was one of many things that should have been done away with by the Civil War. The Civil War should have proven the ridiculousness of that, and, but it didn't because the array of forces weren't sufficient to, to change that relationship. Uh, and Northern Republicans were incredibly scared of the urban immigrant population that they had in their cities, Catholic, foreign language people, Democrats. And, the, and as a result, many northern states that were governed by Republicans 
had voting restrictions on the books, things like tax requirements for voting uh, and property restrictions. And they didn't want to give those up. They didn't want to undermine their control there because the, the Republican Party was much more centered in the North than the South. And the, the Southern Republicans had very little influence in D.C. Uh, Northern Republicans controlled the party and controlled the direction of the party. And they wanted to maintain their power in the states that they controlled. Uh, and it should be noted that uh, even though the, the, one of the knocks on the 15th Amendment at the time was that it was a special amendment that was especially designed for blacks and did not cover everybody, uh, most ex-slaves in the political arena and uh, said, no, this should be universalized because that is the radical wellspring of, uh, of the black political tradition in this country comes from the fact that there's nobody that black people can sell out. It's not because they're better than the rest of us, which is sort of, I think, the unspoken assumption of like the liberal notion that uh, suffering is righteousness. Uh, in, in the political sense, the reason that, that uh, black Americans have been like at the forefront of the uh, general move towards social progress in this country is because they cannot sell anybody out because there's nobody that they can uh, make a deal with power to get a worse deal than them in exchange for them getting slightly better conditions. They're at the bottom of the totem pole. Now, over time, you get uh, structures within the, the black community that reward people at the top and create like a comprador situation. Somebody's talking about Jim Clyburn and yes, He's essentially a, a comprador for the internal colony of black America. But in general, like the black political tradition has uh, is disabused of a lot of the ideological uh, mystifications of, uh, of other communities because uh, what is screened away in those communities, the inherent oppressiveness of political institutions uh, is revealed be, or that it's screened to them by the fact that they don't suffer the worst of it, that there's some sort of wage, skin wage, social wage that is a uh, inducement to accepting some element of America's ideology, which isn't something that, that uh, has been open to the majority of, of blacks since the end of slavery. Uh, and so while the 15th Amendment was not all it could have been, uh, it was still a huge leap forward because even a few years earlier, uh, as we've talked about on this stream, the idea of uh, enfranchising uh, black Americans, men, but uh, any black Americans, was absolutely unthinkable anywhere in the country. And the 15th Amendment uh, made black enfranchisement national policy. So that does speak to the fluidity of the moment and the real possibility for, uh, for things to have been pushed further. But the reality was that uh, without a commitment to challenge the entrenched uh, planter class and their refusal to accept black political subjecti subjectivity, it just wasn't going to be enough. Uh, and it wasn't helped by the fact that, as I said, Southern Republicans in D 
DC uh, didn't have really any influence in Congress. They could, there was nothing that they could wheel or deal about because they were coming from uh, a part of the country that was economically stagnant. All of the, all of the incredible amount of uh, economic uh, expansion that I'm going to talk about for the next chapter, all of it was happening in the West and in the North. The South was completely stagnant during that period. No capital was coming into the South relative to what was going to the West and North. Uh, so that means there, and, the, and that matched with the fact that the local, the power and the money that did exist in the South was all oriented around the planter classes and the Democratic Party, meaning that there was no uh, structure for campaign donations and, 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 camp, and uh, party in infrastructure funded by local uh, political elites, which you had in the North, meant that there was no money for them to uh, come North to spread around. Uh, they were at the mercy of a Republican, National Republican Party that was kind of sick of the whole thing. Uh, and one of the reasons was because these guys were increasingly, the, the, the Northern Repu Republicans were increasingly orienting around capitalism and uh, and economic development as their agenda and away from uh, black rights. A lot of them, more and more they were feeling like this, we fought the war to end slavery. Slavery is over. They have the vote. Now let's make, let's get this bread. Uh, and, and their liberal fixations, including their mania for private property and a limited government to prevent that private property from being, uh, being messed with, led them to, uh, some of them, to actually resist things like the Enforcement Acts and the Klan Act that allowed for the suppression of some of the most horrific violence in the South. Uh, but my man Benjamin Butler said to these idiots, if the federal government cannot pass laws to protect the rights, liberties, and lives of the citizens of the United States in the states, why were guarantees of those fundamental rights put in the Constitution at all? And he was able to get the Klan Act passed and the Enforcement Acts over the complaints of these northern liberals, uh, and it had an effect. It, it brought down the level of violence. So that's Chapter 9. All right, so Chapter 10 moves north. We've been in the south this whole time. Now Chapter 10 says, hey, well, this was all happening in the south. What's been going on in the north parts of the war? And what has been going on is, you, is that the economy is exploding. Thanks to this railroad, this crooked railroad-based uh, economic investment scheme, um, there's a huge boom in railroads, mining, lumber, manufacturing. And more importantly than the fact that these things are ex expanding, they are consolidating. Like these, uh, in mining, for example, uh, for, for most of the mid-19th century, the, the, the mission of a miner was like, a, um, you know, a prospector, going and finding a hole, digging it, digging it when he wanted to, stopping when he wanted to, controlling the conditions of his labor. By the early 1870s, most of those people had either stopped mining or been bought out and been replaced by large corporate mine interests paying wage laborers to go deep underground. Uh, if anybody has seen Deadwood, 
the whole arc of George Hurst coming to town and buying all the claims and bringing in Cornish laborers. That, that's, that's the process we're seeing in the South. Even the land, which was the dream of westward expansion, yeoman freedom in land owning, even the land in many parts of the West was being consolidated under the ownership of a few big uh, uh, owners. California is the perfect example of this. Uh, California is one of the most agriculturally rich areas of the country. And even in the 1870s, it was already coming under the control of a handful of families. And that never went away. California agriculture has been controlled by a cartel of, of agri- agricultural families uh, ever since. And the thing that's doing this is Eastern money, money from New York, money from uh, Europe, coming to invest in railroads, invest in mining, invest in cattle, as we talked about with the, with the Richard White book, and to invest in uh, lumber. Uh, and while these companies are buying out their competitors and, and increasing their share, they are facilitating that by just also buying the fuck out of the entire political structure. Republicans, Democrats, everybody is getting in on it uh, in the forms of outright bribes, in the form of retainers. There was a Senator Lyman uh, Trumbull from Illinois uh, who was on retainer while in the Senate from a railroad company, which was at the time legal. Uh, and even more than that, just the distribution of stock to stock in railroad companies to political politicians who would then vote to give land to that very railroad company. Absolute self-dealing. Uh, and we talked about how this kind of uh, corruption undermined the, uh, the reputations of the Reconstruction radical governments, but... Whatever was happening in the South was dwarfed by what was happening in the rest of the country because there was more money. Uh, by, from 1862 to 1872, 100 million acres of land in the United States were just given to railroads. And a number of ex-slaves pointed out pretty aptly, how the hell did those guys, what did they do to earn that land? When you're telling us that we can't be given land because that would be Wrong. That would violate social private property rights. That would, because because we haven't earned it. We have to learn how to, you have to learn to work, even though they literally had worked the land their entire goddamn lives and had every bit of their fucking labor taken from them. But it's because the railroads had money. The railroads were going to build, create jobs. The railroads were looking to the future. Uh, uh, black land ownership, which was, going to be subsistence land ownership was not going to be the kind of productive, large-scale agricultural output that they were looking for was not, uh, was not productive. Uh, but the Republicans, while they were doing this in the North, were also extending the state-building project that was happening in the South, North, elsewhere also. These governments were starting to build much more public schooling and hospital and infrastructure and uh, that had existed before. But all of that meant taxes went up very much, which also pissed people off. Uh, and also all of the corruption pissed people off, too. Uh, one of the more perfect uh, stories about the way that the liberal middle class reacted to uh, 
to the scandal of railroad uh, corruption. Uh, and this is also in the Richard White book, uh, and Foner talks about it too, uh, because it's very, just very perfectly emblematic of not just the, the time, but the, 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 the function of like middle-class moralism in sort of uh, manufacturing consent and, and reinforcing capitalist rule. So in Massachusetts, which was the, it had been the, the center of abolitionism, it was the center of liberal republicanism and, and that middle-class tradition of, of property rights uh, and horrible fear and dis- disdain at Irish immigrants who were filling up Boston like crazy. Uh, those Massachusetts reformers who had the, the state on lock at that point, uh, they decided that they were going to fix railroad corruption, not by regulating the railroads, which would have been an intervention in the, the private sector, but by creating a, uh, a expert panel to, to see over the railroad uh, contracts and to compile information about them. And it was led by a prominent uh, blue blood and literal descendant of presidents, jo- uh, Charles Francis Adams Jr., who, over the course of his tenure at the top of it, turned the organization into a uh, captured instrument of the railroads and, in fact, speculated in railroad stock while he was at the top. The same corruption that all the dirty uh, polls were doing, um, he just did, but from the dispassionate position of an unelected uh, uh, technocrat. By the way, why is everybody talking about fucking World War II in the chat? I just noticed everyone's talking about is everyone, what, people playing Axis and Allies? What's going on? This is about whether they should have dropped, they dropped the bomb. What's going on here? Or, that, or if the, the Soviets could have taken Japan? We're not going to let the Soviets take Japan. That was not going to happen. We nuked them to stop that from happening. So in the middle of this, the working class is, for the first time in American history, coming into coherence as a political force. But it is very much divided by geography, ethnicity, language, conditions of work. Some places, like Pittsburgh at this point, are still uh, places where workers really have conditions of labor that are closer to an artisan. Uh, uh, whereas in other places like New York City, you have uh, like the creation of real, like, you know, 19, what you think of when you think of those dark satanic mills, Massachusetts too, of course. Uh, and so that thing, those things all like make it difficult for them to articulate a coherent politics. But there are certain political issues that come out of uh, labor organizing. One is uh, greenbacks. The uh, notion of replacing gold backs, uh, uh, gold specie as America's uh, uh, currency uh, peg with just printing money, fiat currency. And of course, it's very interesting to see, read these 19th century uh, conservatives freaking out about, uh, fiat, about the very notion of fiat currency, when now most people take fiat currency, even conservatives take fiat currency as sort of, you know, necessary. Of course, there's a lot of libertarian types who fixate on the gold standard or Bitcoin, but uh, 
If you're in power, you kind of under, assume that this is there's no real alternative to fiat. Uh, and but but what's different between the fiat that we have now and the fiat that uh, that was being proposed by these early uh, working class political movements is that we have the Federal Reserve now. We have a fake structure of impartiality to control the money supply outside of democratic control. What the Greenbacks movement was, was, hey, how about we decide collectively how much money there is? Which was, of course, absolutely anathema to uh, Wall Street, to the fucking Bank of England, which was at this point sort of in the same position in the global trade nexus that like the uh, IMF and stuff has now. Uh, the, the Civil War really did open it, – it, it flayed the skin, the ideological flesh off of the notion of money and revealed the bone. Like before – there was this fantasy about what money was before the Civil War. And then when the Civil War happened and they just printed a bunch of money and people took it and it worked, it really did show that, yeah, no, money is money is valuable to the degree that the uh, – that the body issuing it has some sort of uh, claim of authority where it's being uh, exchanged. Uh, and these, li- these liberal conservatives, these uh, Republicans, uh, these pro-capital Republicans were desperately, desperately interested in closing up that wound, which is why at this period you're seeing, de- even though you're seeing this huge economic expansion, there's a deflationary pressure because the government is in the process of calling in greenbacks and applying a gold standard. It took years. It took until the mid 1870s, I think, to actually get to a gold standard because there had been so much money putting out through the Civil War that had to be kind of pulled back in, um, uh, but not like all at once. Because for one thing, working people were like, "No, more fucking money, please." Uh, but the other big uh, issue was the eight-hour day which was becoming sine qua non with freedom. If you, if you could not be a yeoman, if, you, if the dream of, of, of total property autonomy was, was dying for a lot of these people, if you had to work, then you should work a reasonable amount, eight hours to work, eight hours to rest, eight hours of what we will. Uh, and that led to a movement in Congress to uh, limit federal employees to eight hours, which passed over the objection of a bunch of these liberal Republicans who thought that was uh, an, an, a horrible intervention in, in, the, uh, in the free market. Uh, black workers, of course, were largely cut out of the uh, labor movement due to racism uh, and, and due to the, the, their perception as threats, and also the fact that there weren't that many black laborers in the North. And the black people made up, at this point, less than 2% of the Northern population. Uh, and black laborers in the South, obviously, were dealing with their own situation and were still largely agricultural. Uh, but the where black workers did organize, they did kind of naturally end up being a little more conciliatory towards capital because there was no uh, solidarity extended. Uh, there's a story that Fauner rep- repeats about uh, a massive strike by uh, white stevedores in Baltimore to get black shipyard workers off of the docks and led to the firing over a thousand of them. Uh, and then a local white merchant helping a group of uh, black uh, stevedores get access to their own shipyard. So there was an idea that, well, 
if we're not getting any help from the worker class, maybe we can get some help from well-intentioned uh, capitalists. And of course, the idea of a well-intentioned capitalist, that's a fraud, but it's a fraud that is per- propagated by things like race uh, hatred as a wedge that defeats working class solidarity. So the labor movement caused a huge amount of cognitive dissonance in a lot of Republicans who had been committed to ending slavery, uh, in part because they thought that if they ended slavery, that they would basically solve the labor problem in America. That the labor, the labor, uh, the only labor problem in the United States was the existence of slavery. And that if we did have a nation where everybody was equal in the market and was able on the market to equally sell their labor uh, and their goods and exchange, that that would be essentially the, the, the state of nature because that was very much the, uh, underlying, the underlying ideological fantasy of liberalism is that there is such a thing as an economic state of nature and that the economic state of nature is uh, free market exchange and that the government is essentially perverting the world, perverting the earth, violating sacred laws by intervening in the market. In fact, one of the big arguments uh, that the liberal Republicans made against greenbacks was that uh, repudiating gold-backed debt was uh, dishonorable and that uh, denying the intrinsic value of gold was unnatural. Uh, these guys all thought that they were the most you know, brilliant uh, rationalists in the universe, but like, this is all stuff that falls apart on the merest examination. It's all tautology. But if everybody is jacking themselves off with the same tautology, and that tautology keeps you at the top of an ep- economic pecking order, it keeps you from having to get your hands dirty, it's more powerful than any idea which is why history is not made by ideas. Ideas come later. Ideas ratify a state of affairs and ratify the uh, hierarchy within it uh, because no one will ever adhere to an idea or at least no critical mass of people in power will adhere to an idea that undermines their position of power. Because the only thing they really believe in is the power they hold. The only thing they really believe in is not having to work for the money they have. Because who would? Who would want to? Nobody wants to work. So this, the fact that you have these white laborers saying, hey, this sucks. Uh, we're being exploited. We're, we're, we're actually slaves in a way. It fucked with the, their heads of these Republicans. It, 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 it caused them to have to confront a lot of their priors. And uh, what they did to solve that problem, that, that crisis of ideology, was to just stop thinking ideologically. Uh, and this led to the – and this is part of the process that leads to the end of the ideological era of the Republican Party when it was organized around a principle – which it was from its founding in 1852, I believe, until like probably you could say 1868. Uh, and it becomes a organizational party. 
like uh, exactly the way that Van Buren's uh, democracy turned into. Uh, you start with an attempt to advance an ideological position through a party structure, but once that party takes power, once that party in, embeds itself in power structures and creates parasitic relationships with power the way that the Republican Party did with the emerging uh, corporate interests of the time, uh, it no longer needs its ideological motivation. It is able to motivate people to vote for it, to, uh, to fill its ranks through uh, its organizational enticements uh, in the form of uh, patronage. Jobs for people all throughout the levels of government, uh, and more importantly for the point of view of the party than the patronage, is the kickbacks. Because 19th century spoil system worked like this. The party gets in power, whichever one it is. If you're a Van Buren Democrat, you're, a, you're, a, uh, you're one of Roscoe Conkling's Republicans in New York. Uh, and you're a good Republican. You're friends with like your local alderman. He gets you a job as a postal worker. You are expected to kick somewhere between 10 to 20% of your salary to the Republican Party. Now, you might also have to pay the guy who got you the job, but that's between you two. The, the party depends upon this circulation of money back into its coffers. And this led to the creation of a segment within the Republican Party called the Stalwarts, who didn't give a shit about how corrupt all of this was, because they were looking after the power of the Republican Party. Now, for many of them, like Roscoe Conkling and James Blaine, it was largely self-serving. These guys were political entrepreneurs. But Butler was also uh, a, uh, a stalwart. And even though Butler, I don't think, is in any way a principled person, uh, when he was uh, military governor of New Orleans, he confiscated uh, cotton he basically made up a, uh, a pretense to confiscate all the cotton coming in and out of New Orleans and then auctioned it uh, at very low prices to his brother, who was one of his adjutants. Uh, but he was also interested in the, 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 uh, the spoil system because it gave the Republican Party power. And he actually wanted that power to be put in the service of uh, – extending freedom to uh, ex-slaves and also to uh, the laboring classes of the North. And the thing that they, these stalwarts, the way that the stalwarts got people to vote for uh, Republicans was the ones who weren't just benefiting from the patronage was not necessarily through ideology as it was through resentment. Uh, the Civil War had just happened. It killed 300,000 Northerners. The people who killed them were basically all Democrats. The Democrats were still the other party in America. You could do well in most Northern states that sent thousands and thousands of boys south to fight the war by saying, vote for us. The other guys literally shot your brother. They called it waving the bloody shirt. And it worked. Who? I'm not voting for the party that literally killed one of my relatives. And while they were doing this, uh, they were also uh, 
attaching themselves remora-like to this emerging corporate uh, capital structure, uh, demanding kickbacks to the party itself, not just to the individual members of the party, at every level of uh, economic transaction, uh, which kept them detached from any specific interest and answerable only to themselves, but still dependent upon these capitalist structures in order to, to fund their, uh, their actions. And this, this situation, this corrupt confluence, uh, which led to the creation of a bunch of political machines, especially in cities like Philadelphia, that were essentially identical to the old Tammany Hall machine in New York, only with Republicans instead of Democrats. Why are you talking about PMC again? Why is everyone talking about PMC? You should be talking about PMC because we're leading to the revolt of the PMC from within the Republican Party. And that is the rise of the liberal Republicans as a faction in the first, end of the, at, at, and during the, the first grant term. Uh, and this is a group of reformers, intellectuals, journalists, the people who are like the closest thing we would have to that kind of class in the 19th century when, you know, capitalism is still in a, in a protean state, uh, attempting to draw the line of social progress at emancipation and civic equality. Because they were seeing the, these, these middle-class reforming types, Protestants, uh, merchant class, the people who had been the engines of abolition, uh, they were seeing that there were two, that, 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 the, that the anti-slavery cause ideologically had like two strands to it. One strand was a recognition, it was, it was a recognition of human equality. It said slavery is wrong because we are all people and it is wrong for people to be uh, deprived of liberty. But there is another side, the other, the, the other side of that, which was motivating them just as much, because remember, this is the merchant core, and not, if not merchants, all of the people who lived around the merchants, like all these intellectuals and academics and reformers, they all lived around finance capital, even if they were not directly involved in it. Their, their livelihoods depended on finance capital. Uh, that other strand said that slavery needed to be abolished uh, because it interfered with market efficiency, because uh, it was a feudal le- uh, remnant. It was a backwards approach to the economic management that what, what the future was, was liberal subjectivity, universalized liberal subjectivity. And once the war ends and the project of building America's capitalist uh, structures becomes much more uh, central, in large part because the war itself creates a bunch of capital, War is always the thing that sparks in uh, capitalist development in countries. The, the second industrial revolution in England was a direct result of the Napoleonic War. America's uh, industrial efflorescence was predicated on the, uh, the Civil War in the same way. Uh, so with that as the new 
focus of, of these, this merchant class, that universalizing, that, that, that ethical uh, argument kind of lost its purchase because there's no more technical slavery. Everything else, oh, you know, black people are still being killed and, and, and whipped and, and oppressed in the South. Sure, but they have the vote. It's up to them to fix it. It's up to them to get their money. Everybody's equal in the market. And what and uh, what these people wanted uh, was to stop reconstruction, or at least let it stop uh, pushing forward on it, uh, getting rid of the tariff, imposing free trade, instituting civil service reform so that you couldn't have the spoil system for distributing patronage, uh, and replacing elected officials with appointed experts. And the guys. The guy that these guys hated more than anybody in government was, you guessed it, Benjamin Butler. They even had a word for his politics, Butlerism, which we could talk, which if you look at Butlerism now, it is the closest thing this era had to a egalitarian socialist political project. Benjamin Butler was essentially the only guy left standing by the 1870s who was holding the string the the uh, that led guys like August Village and the German forty uh, and the German socialists to fight the Civil War, uh, the, the things that uh, John Brown envisioned when he was trying to end slavery, and that was uh, a actual expansion of politics to everybody. It was if we are a democracy, that means it is government by the people, not as the liberals thought government by the best and most refined people who just so happen coincidentally, not only are they the most refined, uh, they are also the people who are on top of all the fucking money. So not only was Ben Butler a, uh, uh, in very much in favor of vigorous suppression of the Klan in the South and, uh, and the support of black whites from the federal level, he was in favor of Irish independence, he was in favor of women's suffrage, he was in favor of labor reform, and greenbacks. Also, I should point this out, as I said earlier, wildly crooked. He was a spoilsman through and through. He was not, I don't think you could say, a good person by any, in any kind of existential sense. He was somebody who, through the course of his career, was pushed in direction that led him to find uh, value in this. You could, and, and that was really the argument these guys made, is that a guy like Butler is a demagogue because he's just using the poor to try to get power for himself. Uh, but even if that's true, the politics that he proposed, uh, it meant taking seriously the challenge of slavery and the, and of the war to defeat slavery, which was to recognize the essential conflict being between classes and that the war against the planters necessitated morally and politically, a continued war against private property as it currently existed in the United States. So the way liberals dealt with this conflict, the problem of Reconstruction, the problem that, hey, we, uh, we ended slavery, we created civic equality, we created equality in the market, and black people in the South are still very fucked. Uh, what's the what's the deal here? There's two things you can take from that. You can say, well, it's because uh, 
It's because the market is not independent of power and politics. There is no natural order. Uh, You actually have to build and maintain political order. And until now in American history, we have had a private property regime, a fantasy of yeoman autonomy that was predicated on there being a class of workers who did the most intense, the most brutal labor, the most extractive labor, who were not part of the political body. And the existence of those people allowed for the creation of some sort of classless fantasy. That's what Calhoun imagined. Uh, And once you end that, once you bring this proscribed class into the political spectrum, into the political world, you have fundamentally changed the political, what politics is. You have necessitated the transformation of the state and the abolition of the constitutional order, in my opinion, uh, and change the relationship between people and government and people and political power and economic power uh, towards socialism. The other answer you could say is uh, actually they were inferior the whole time, which is what most of the liberal Republicans went with. Liberal Republicans looked at the wreckage of Reconstruction, the failure of Reconstruction by that point, and said, this is because the blacks just weren't up for it. Even though the conditions that doomed Reconstruction were the conditions imposed by their prescribed nostrums, uh, not not redistributing land, not dispossessing the planters, not freely distributing greenback currency, not abolishing uh, smallholder debt, not doing the things that would have allowed for uh, racist-ass white Southerners to go, you know what, I don't really like black people, but hey, the war ended, and now I have more land, and I'm not in hock to some fucking asshole in a castle. You know, maybe I don't fucking care so much about this shit. Uh, No, no, no. It was their inherent inferiority. Oops. And so uh, the liberal Republicans split off from the Republican Party and in 1872 uh, did an independent uh, convention in Cincinnati. Uh, And this was filled with all of the most sterling liberalites of the time uh, and also all of the Republican office holders who had lost out in uh, party internal battles for power. Basically, it was sore losers and nerds. It was everybody who got boxed out of the, uh, the, the victorious machine in the state they were from and uh, these fucking scribbling dickheads who were fixated on the ideological purity of liberalism. And they nominated Horace Greeley for president, who was a, uh, had been a, a crusading abolitionist newspaper writer and, and hater of Democrats Uh, but who, after the war, had decided that any attempt to impose equality on the South would have been a violation of natural rights and and, and property rights and all the sacred things that make up the American, the incoherent and idiotic American creed of liberty. And so uh, even though he was pro-tariff and the liberals were were wildly against the tariff, uh, he ended up becoming the figure that the liberals could coalesce around, the one they could all agree on. And then the Democrats, who at this point, uh, because of of disenfranchisement of Confederates in the South, 
uh, were in a situation where it was hard to conceive of them winning an election by themselves, uh, also nominated uh, Benjamin uh, uh, Horace Greeley. And because there was no coherence at the top of the ticket, the only real consistent issue they ran on was ending Reconstruction. And Grant ran on the bloody shirt and continuing the fight to uh, for equality. And he got he won. Uh, Grant won 55 percent of the vote, which was one of the biggest uh, landslides of the 19th century. It was such a bad ass kicking that Horace Greeley actually died like three weeks after the election. Uh, and what it really shows is that. Even at that point, even if at the top of the Republican Party, which at this point is being totally dissolved by uh, spoils on the one hand and liberal orthodoxy on the other, uh, there is still an appetite for the war to have meant something, for for the struggle and for the sacrifice to have had a meaning that transcended the mundane of politics. And uh, it speaks more than anything to me to the potential that lay dormant in that moment and that we, that was lost, uh, not for the reasons that the Dunning school assholes talked about, of course, but also, uh, not even for the reasons that like liberal, uh, sort of tragedists would say, uh, a lot of just bad, bad rolls of the dice. Sometimes you play D and D and you get a bad roll, but I think the fecundity of the moment, more than anything speaks to the fecundity of every moment. Uh, that no matter how hopeless things seem in the moment, uh, that there's always a chance to push through. And figures like, like the existence of a guy like Benjamin Butler and his trajectory of his career. I mean, he was a guy who, he made his money in the Civil War by, uh, by selling flour to the army who leveraged his relationship with a local bank into getting a commission, uh, who was by any stretch as much of a self-seeking entrepreneurial scumbag as you'll find in uh, 19th century American politics. But because of the pinballing randomness of life and his, the encounters that he had over the course of the war, he found himself in a situation where he was the national spokesman for a road not taken. And the fact that it wasn't taken, I don't know. It to me means that it could have been. Okay. So next week, we're going to wrap it up. Last two chapters. Uh, and then I think we'll take a little break. I'm not going to stop doing the Wednesday stream, but I might not have a book for a couple weeks just to like, do some other reading I need to do. Uh, but we will get into, it might be black reconstruction, although I might take a break from reconstruction right now. I will do black reconstruction. I promise it. I just might not do it next just because it's a lot of reconstruction. Uh, maybe cleanse the palate with something. Uh, maybe do a, uh, something about maybe the German revolution. I don't know. So what were you guys talking about the World War II?
Oh, were the Americans useless in Europe in World War II? I mean, I wouldn't say useless. I think the thing about, like, the Germans winning, the, the Russians winning it, like, obviously, but, I mean, they were sure got their asses kicked there for a while. <laughs> I mean, if there's a situation where the United States isn't the industrial dynamo it is, because like, it was the industrial capacity of the United States that beat the Germans more than their military in, involvement in the war, that did it. Grant was very much an Eisenhower figure. Eisenhower, Grant, and Washington are all, I would say, in the same basket of presidents in that they are figures who emerge from a war, a, a, a conflict, a, a distribution of the status quo to validate the new uh, status quo and, and whose who's, um, who's symbolic role as like deliverer of victory allows them to uh, subsume all of the contradictions of that moment into themselves and sublimate them. Which means that they are all kind of, by definition, reactionary figures. But like in a relative sense, you know? Like Grant, like I've said, uh, did a lot more than the liberal Republicans wanted him to do, but uh, was not... um, Uh, was still a reaction to radical republicanism and a desire to see it not ascend anymore. The same way Eisenhower, even though he, you know, he validated the the New Deal consensus for the Republican side, was a uh, suppression both of, like, at that point, the uh, sort of, uh, I guess, declining radicalism of the new deal because by 52 thanks to uh the second red scare and the taft hartley act uh the the radical edge of the new deal is is very much uh, guttering out by that point but also of the sort of resurgent right populist the, the 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 taft wing of the republican party the the ring that is now the whole of the party uh, who were neutralized by the cabal of Wall Street uh, financiers who foisted Eisenhower on the convention, which is literally what he did. And just like Washington, Washington was an avatar of American liberty, but then in power, he validated the federalist uh, concentration of uh, capital and the, the, uh, the alienation of rights away from the states and away from the land into uh, into money. Yeah, R.I.P. Peter Salipin, reformer without results. He was definitely a reformer, but no results for Peter Salipin. Merked at the opera.
And the last thing I want to say, and this is something that I said in one of the white streams, I think, talking about the liberal Republicans and this liberal uh, movement here that takes over, that it, it becomes the center mass of politics, historically anyway. And it's very important to note that the liberal Republicans and the people they represented were always a very small percentage of the population. They had no real ability to uh, control events, as you can see by the fact that all they could do is get a doofus old editor who was dying nominated, uh, who got his ass kicked. Um, but they were influential in retrospect and influential uh, off of the scenes because they were they were the 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 articulation of the culture. These are the people who wrote about stuff. These are the people who wrote all of the good press that we look through to understand the past. So they structured the culture, even though they were not uh, necessarily in control of it. Uh, and they are, even though their ideology is now the ideology of the right wing, uh, the people are, the class itself is still around. And they, over the course of the 19th century, went from being having this like reactionary uh, uh, politics of hard money and uh, uh, laissez-faire economics. By the turn of the century, these are also these this type of person. It's different people. They're people who have grown into it. They're they're younger people who have displaced those older people. Uh, are progressive because by that point they could no longer sustain the illusions of the liberal Republicans because capitalism by that point had definitively failed to provide what the liberals had insisted it would. Uh, and so they decided that a, a more interventionist model was necessary. And that's where progressivism comes from. But the fundamental reality is that they can never truly challenge capitalism because of their embeddedness within it. And now we have a situation where you've got this PMC that people freak out about uh, and They do have that same class position, but the, the difference between the historical iterations of these people and the current moment is that there is no uh, working class for them to bamboozle or uh, undermine. Uh, we're all in essentially the same class position in this country in that we do not have any class awareness. We don't operate from class Consciousness. Uh, it was coming into being in the 19th century. It came into fruition during the New Deal era. Uh, and then it started to decay in the 60s and 70s. And, and it's been finally, over the last 40 years, abolished. Because you've got to remember, every cycle brings new people. Like, not, not new classes necessarily. Not new relationships and, and uh proximities to capital, but new people who are responding to the world that the previous people had made. So those young, those progressives who come into the ranks of the intelligentsia in the 1890s are coming into the world made by, the, in, in large part, the liberal Republicans. And they uh, respond to that. But they respond within the structure. And now everybody is responding to a structure that is where structure is uh, dissolved, where the individual is the only thing. 
which was the dream of the of the liberals. Like they've got it. But I don't think any of them would look at the society we have and say that it was what they wanted. But that's because they were never doing what they thought they were doing. They were they were convincing themselves at every point that they were generating this culture. What they, they were really doing was advancing capitalism. And capitalism doesn't give a shit about any of your niceties. It doesn't care about the culture that you're trying to preserve. It only cares about surplus value. And the extraction of surplus value over time is a series of traumas that deform and reduce and undermine every structure of, of meaning within a society and leave it uh, atomized and, and miserable. Even, and no one will, who is exercising the will of this thing can stop it because they don't know that's what they're doing. And that's, that is what ideology does. Ideology takes all the bad feelings that accumulate from being part of a extractive, exploitative, isolating economic system and creates a culture that validates them. One way or the other. And right now we're in the situation we are with like the polarization and the, uh, the uh, epistemic bubbles because we have finally achieved a situation. Uh, uh, we have reestablished a situation rather that existed before the Civil War where uh, you have two poles of capital that generate their own cultural frameworks that are totally separate. The, the, the land-based extractive capital uh, culture of MAGA and the coastal finance capital of the Democrats. I did see the thing about uh, Tenet. That was pretty funny. Although apparently, like, it was not in 2000. It was in 2006. I don't know. I don't know that much about it. I don't try to get into the 9-11 thing because I would go insane. My opinion of the people in the Bush administration would be no different if I found out they did 9-11 or not. All right, folks. Uh, well, Friday we'll do another chill out. I don't know if I'm going to do, I don't know if uh, Chris will be free to, to game, but if he isn't, I'll still uh, just hang out and take questions. Bye, folks.